This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that explores what it will take to have a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. Our time together each week begins with an explanation from Tim Keller about one of six essential elements of a missionary encounter. After that, we'll have conversations with scholars and practitioners of various sorts who study these things and do them in diverse contexts throughout Europe and North America. Think of Dr. Keller's presentation as a pass over difficult terrain from a relatively high altitude, and each of our guests as guides at regional airports who can show us what the features we saw from the air look like on the ground. This week, Tim Keller describes the need for a Christian high theory that critiques the dominant culture to show how it fails to live up to its own moral and ethical standards. This project, a foundational element of a missionary encounter, is something of a return to early Christian apologetics, as we'll see in a minute. And the goal of this work, ultimately, is to show that the gospel alone resolves our deepest desires and answers our most burning questions. We're joined by Pete Nicholas, a pastor in London who writes about how to do just this thing in his new book, A Place for God. He helps us think through how to listen well and connect with the culture's best desires. Then we go back to Athens to speak with Tim Kumar, a church planter who spends a lot of his time with young people who believe that Christians, too, have failed to measure up to their own moral and ethical standards. He talks about how we can hear their critiques as an invitation to model repentance. But first, Tim Keller. Christian High Theory Before we can explain the gospel to a culture, we must analyze that culture with the gospel. Over the last couple of centuries, the subject of apologetics has involved giving arguments and evidences for the truth of Christianity, such as stating a case for the historicity of the resurrection. This approach goes back to the New Testament, see 1 Corinthians 15. But the early Christian apologists, from Justin Martyr to Augustine, did more than that. They did not merely try to show that Christian practice and belief were just as rational as the dominant pagan culture. They developed a radical critique of the dominant culture that showed how it failed to measure up to its own standards. After the sack of Rome in 410, for example, pagan Romans were quick to blame the destruction on the Christians. By their reckoning, the Roman gods let their city fall as punishment for worshiping this new Christian god. This claim led Augustine to write The City of God, in which he developed what today would be called critical theory, or high theory. He used the gospel to critique the foundations of pagan culture as inconsistent with its own aspirations. Further, he argued that paganism itself, not Christianity, was to blame for the destruction of Rome. Today, a Christian high theory might profitably begin by questioning our culture's claims to neutrality, objectivity, and universality. It would engage the late modern secular view of the world publicly. It would show how, in an effort to free the individual self, culture has led to our current condition, in which all values are relative, all relationships are transactional, all identities are fragile, and all supposed sources of fulfillment are disappointing. And so, ironically, we are still not free not free objectively as local communities and families decline, as public and private bureaucracies impenetrable and unresponsive dominate our lives, and not free subjectively as we experience inner loneliness and enslaving addictions. Christian theory must be able to escape political captivity. 
It can do that by using the biblical doctrine of God and gospel to critique the forms of secular modernity that reduce human life to purely individual choices or reduce it to the product of historical material and social forces, leading to both libertarian conservatism or progressive Marxism, respectively. Christian high theory must first expose the main flaws in our culture's narratives, showing how they fit neither human nature nor our most profound intuitions about life, let alone our own moral ideals. Then Christian theory must point to the beauty and truth of the gospel as the fulfilling counter-narrative. This work is largely going to be that of Christians in the academy and the help of non-Christian scholars and thinkers who have also seen the fatal flaws in late modernity. Many of these people have already focused on the problem of unchecked individualism, the problem of the late modern self, and the problem of relativism, all of which are intensified in today's late modern culture. I'm passionate about answering people's questions, particularly helping to people to see how um, the gospel uh, comes to bear on those questions, and not in a simplistic way, but brings a sense of resolution and in an ongoing, um, you know, we're now walking these things out um, type of way. And I've always been passionate about understanding how different generations have a different set of questions. Pete Nicholas is a pastor at Inspire St. James Clerkenwell Church in London. He's a longtime friend of Redeemer City to City as part of the leadership team for City to City UK and the London Project, which is a City to City initiative to catalyze churches and networks to collaborate to plant healthy, gospel-centered churches that impact London. In his most recent book, A Place for God, Pete does just the sort of thing Tim Keller advocates for. He identifies and assesses cultural narratives about our origins, our identities, and the good life. And he shows us how all the things we really want are satisfied in Jesus. It's an effort to answer age-old questions for a new generation. I, I noticed about 10 or 15 years ago that it seemed that the cultural wind had shifted and the questions that we were often trying to answer, you know, because Christians would would put the event on and say, come and listen to this question about you know, how good is good enough for God or isn't it arrogant to just claim that there's one truth about God? And it just didn't seem that those questions were connecting anymore. And so... I started thinking that, that there's a generational shift and was looking at it and the kind of the so-called millennial, Gen Z, you know, kind of generations were coming in and they, they just have a very different set of values, a very different set of um, questions. You couldn't start with the Judeo-Christian God or start with how good is good enough for God. Someone would turn around and say, which God are we talking about? <laughs> or why are we talking about God? And at a similar time, the rise of TED Talks started to be very popular. So I started um, doing talks around those kind of big question themes, you know, where have we come from, where are we going, how can we be happy, how do we make the world a better place, is success the right thing to live for, what about identity, and they really connected with people. Of course, these are questions that scripture deals with extensively, so I was lucky enough to be able to piggyback on some research that a, um, an organisation called Forge Leadership was doing here in the UK, and it was surveying millennial leaders across lots of different leaders in lots of different areas of life and asking them what questions they were passionate about. And so that kind of validated the hypothesis in a small sample way. And so we, we drew on their questions, drew on the questions that I've been doing for 10 or 15 years and put them into the book. And they kind of formed the core chapters of the book, really. Excellent. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking, really, in my adult life, we've gone from evidence that demands a verdict to a sort of existential 
a much more deeply personal wrestling, not so much with what's out there and objectively available for examination, but how does this intersect with the way I understand myself in the world? Um, and I felt like your approach in the book took that shift seriously, took that shift into consideration. It felt like we're having a new kind of apologetic conversation. Yeah, no, it's, uh, your perceptive and I, I, something that I think has happened is that also within the generational shift, there's been a shift away from just asking the question, is it true? Um, can you give me facts to back it up? Give it the evidence, which is not in, not wrong. Of course, there's loads of evidence and there's lots there, but it's not the sum total of the way that um, scripture seeks to persuade us. It persuades us, you know, of course, you know, love the Lord of God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. There are different faculties to us as human beings truth is important it's not the only faculty or not the only area for us to engage with and for the generation today from for young adults they're particularly passionate about um about the existential dynamic as well so that is how they're moved by things um brands do this massively films do this art does this and it's hugely important it, the aesthetics of something how does it feel is it beautiful is it attractive and so the attractiveness of a of a system of thought is hugely important um and also then the lived experience as well um how does it work out does it make a difference to our lives i think it's easy for christians to, to not realize that we've got real cultural blinkers in this area and sometimes to think oh no but we must just isn't it truth that persuades people but you look back in the bible for example and um you think of the the huge importance of the living life well um for the disciples because they saw jesus live life well that was what discipleship was all about it was as much caught as taught, as some would say. And so I think it's a good thing this generation are basically saying, what difference does it make to your life? Is it attractive? Is it beautiful? And therefore, the way you conduct the conversation is really important. I, I think that's a really positive move. I think that's um, one we want to embrace and the church should be incited about. This reminds me of something that came up in the previous episode. We talked last time about the importance of a Christian community that served as a sign of new creation a community people might want to belong to on their way to believing the gospel. This is part of what it means to demonstrate the goodness and beauty of the gospel, the difference life in Christ can make. And of course, part of being a compelling community is having conversations about the limits of the culture's narratives or challenging competing ideologies in a winsome way that engages rather than alienating. That's why Pete is careful to affirm what he can in dominant cultural narratives, even as he's careful to point out their limitations. For Pete, this includes looking way back to the Enlightenment, in some ways the beginning, or at least a key milestone in our modern secular accounts of the world. You mentioned that, uh, that the decluttering that comes with modernity and the Enlightenment, that there was good cleaning up that happened. Let's talk first about the sort of good things. What do you perceive as a sort of beneficial cleaning up that came with the Enlightenment? Yeah, um, so methodologically, I think one of the really important areas was a phrase that came up first in the Reformation, ad fontes, which was back to the sources, but was key to Renaissance thinking, which was this idea that you need to get back to sources. Now, religiously, theologically, that was back to the Bible, um, but it wasn't only there. It was also a sense within science of testing a hypothesis, not just taking it on faith, that someone said it, the authority. So science took huge leaps forward as a result of that. And in the arts, getting to the primary sources, not just reading a commentary on something, but this was something that was drilled into me in my academic education, was read the primary sources. If you're 
doing something on Descartes, read Descartes and you'll find the brilliance of reading him. Don't just read a commentary, Cottingham's commentary on Descartes, for example. Personhood, I think, is, is really significant. The understanding of personhood, the recapturing of personhood, the kind of not just letting people be defined by the collective institution, um, by the national so traditional societies generally, you know, kind of identified by those kind of collective values, but actually the, the importance of personhood, individual being made in the image of God. So the growth, therefore, of human rights, individuality. Now, we may be in the excesses of it now with individualism, but actually you wouldn't want to go back to only, you know, the collective mattering, only the nation state mattering, and the person really not mattering at all. Um, so personhood is, is hugely important. Um, and that's led to equality as well. Social change in vital areas like greater equality of sexes, greater equality of races. Um, those are three big areas you'd want to take straight away. What do you feel like, despite the gains, have been the losses of that Enlightenment project or, or the way it has developed for the last couple hundred years? Big picture, my hypothesis is that we've, we've kind of thrown out God. Now, of course, we can't throw out God, he's God. Um, but, but in terms of the way that we uh, treat the world of ideas, the way that we respond as human beings, we've thrown out God. Um, so that's the big picture hypothesis, really, in some sense, behind the book. But I think the way we feel that particularly are in the, um, the foundations that underpin so much that we hold dear. So we care passionately in the West, and rightly so, about people's rights but there's kind of no sense of understanding them if you don't understand the underpinnings. Why is it right to say that every human being is equal? I mean, why is that? And that's not even prima facie obvious in most walks of society. If I go to into a sports team, it's graded on ability. Someone in professional sports gets paid more if they're better. So why is that not the way that we should do, we should value people at birth? Why is it so abhorrent to say that a person who's disabled and therefore who lacks abilities in certain foundational areas is not less valuable? Now, of course, as a Christian, I believe that's because they're made in the image of God. They're deeply precious, regardless of their um, you know, particular disability or um, impairment. But, but that, for, from a secular point of view, why, is, why, why do we find that so abhorrent? Where does that come from? And so as you start to shake those things and they get tested in the strains of the culture wars that are going on, why do you think they're going to hold? And that when it comes down to race as well, it's not at all prima facie obvious that people from different ethnic backgrounds are equal. I mean, they're obviously different in different ways, so why does that mean they're equal in value? Now, of course, as a Christian, I know they're equal in value because they're all in, um, they all have the same integral, they're all equally valuable and precious, same with the sexes. But that's not at all obvious, and for the rest of the world and throughout most of history, that hasn't been obvious. And they don't agree with that. So once you shake in again as cultural wars and nationalism kicks in, why are we so naive as to thinking that we're not going to revert back to where most of the world has been without Christianity for most of history, which is, no, you're not equal. Some are better than others. And if we take away the foundations and you shake something, we know what happens when you shake something, when it doesn't have foundations. It sinks. And I think that's the sinking feeling we're getting existentially. We feel like, oh, I'm sinking. Why am I sinking? Well, because you've taken the foundations away. And so I'm passionate about saying to people, that's a, God's made the world in a way that when you shake it without him, it doesn't stand up. So you need to have those foundations back in place. Stefan Pass made the point in our last episode that many of the values and moral impulses we encounter in secular Western culture are there because of the influence of Christianity through the ages. The fact that we may encounter Christian values in our cultural narratives, even where the culture rejects Christian foundations, means that we have to proceed in our analysis with caution. I asked Pete for advice about how to do this. 
I wonder if the first step is coming comes back to that listening, being curious. So really, you know, really helping people to understand um, or helping them, sorry, to articulate what they're saying and listening to them and actually not assuming you know. I think the second one is um, maybe recognizing common grace. Um, all truth is God's truth. Um, he's not afraid of truth. And there's and um, all, you know, falsehood or all um, wrongdoing is a distortion of truth or a distortion of the good. So there's always a remnant there because it's truth and goodness that's foundational. So the most you can do is distort something, but that means there's a distortion of something that is true, a distortion of something. And so if you understand that, you can always find good in every situation. Um, and so looking for that and seeing that and affirming that when you see that. I'd like to take a specific example from your book and sort of unpack your process. One chapter that I think is particularly um, well done, also a topic that's particularly relevant, is a chapter on identity. I wonder if you could just walk us through the process. Yeah, that, that modernity and the kind of narrative of identity is really important. It's be true to yourself, look within yourself. I've got to go away to on a holiday to find myself. You know, all of that framing, you just listen to the framing of it. There, it assumes that there's a coherent you deep down that you have to find. Often that you is masked or hidden or obscured by society or culture or people around you. And so the kind of coming out narrative is for years and years, I wasn't allowed to be myself, but then I finally you know, built up the courage to be myself. And that assumes that there is a you. And once you dig down enough and find the you, then you've got to be true to that. Um, and I, I, but then the, the late modern or postmodern, you know, kind of narrative says, whoa, 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 hang on, that, if you assume there's a you still to be true to, that you itself is a, is a social construct, and you're still ultimately enslaved, because that's been imposed upon you, you just don't realise it. There is no you, you're, you're a blank canvas, you can be whoever you want to be, you know, don't be constrained by that, the complete liberty, um, and so it pushes together, and it's really important to realise that within the LGBT community, this fundamental difference of identity has caused massive rifts um, because a number of the people who've been championing gay rights were um, women and who've been very, very you know, vocal advocates of it. But they were also very uneasy with this idea, well, hang on, you're saying there's nothing ultimately to a woman that are, that are you know, the, the experience I've been through under patriarchy and the difficulty of engaging with and growing up in a body that to be crude menstruates and all that that means as a young girl that you can say as a as a born man who now identifies as a woman that you know that you've been through that you know that struggle that just invalidates my struggle you would never do that in the in the civil rights um, area you never say a white person to a black person i know your struggle that would be outrageous so why are you saying that to me as a woman and they split over it and that's because there are these two different narratives that they're, they're trying to live by. And that's not saying that every transgender person buys into the postmodern narrative. Some buy into that. Some say I'm a transgender because that's who I really am. Um, it's just saying there are these two different narratives. And, and I think then pointing out that they are mutually exclusive. Um, they don't hold together. It can't both be true that there is a you you've got to be true to. And at the same time true that there is no fundamental you at all. You're a blank canvas. And then gently pushing people a bit on the implications of it. If you say that, that you know, you can be whoever you want to be and there's no you, does that mean there's nothing to you as identity, just only what you choose? So when it's all stripped away, what's left? It feels liberating, but then suddenly it's quite chilling at the same time. There's no me, or I don't want to admit that. On the other hand, if you say when you look within yourself and say, just find you, well, where am I looking to? My emotions, my desires, they change. Are they healthy? Are they good? I mean, don't I spend a lot of time with a psychologist telling me that that part of me is not very healthy? 
So how do I know whether that part that I'm finding is good, bad, and different? So I think drawing out the implications and, and people go, oh, yeah, ha, huh, that, is, that is a problem. So I, in the book, I try to explore that a bit, but not in an attacking way. I think just wanting people to kind of help and see. And then I try to identify what I think um, from a fair bit of study or reflection of the two dominant values that people are searching for. So what's the good that they're after? One is liberty and one is security. And really the interplay between those two identity narratives about the interplay between those two values. We want a source of identity that is liberating, I'm not constrained, and we want a source of identity that gives me the security and the foundations to navigate a challenging world. And of course I believe those are God-given you know, desires, liberty and security, because that's part of what our identity is in Christ. And then exploring the way that those narratives, modern and postmodern, seek after those but don't ultimately achieve those. Um, and then the final thing, I think, is then really exploring in an authentic way how the gospel gives you that, how receiving an identity from Christ, not predicated on something I do or something I've chosen, but on who he has made me um, uh, in him, is wonderfully liberating. It's actually not the straitjacket that a lot of people think it is, even a lot of Christians think it is. It's very liberating. Um, but it also just gives a marvellous security because... Um, you know, it can't be taken away. My name is written in heaven, it's secure. Um, it can't be affected by things of this world. It can't be undone by something I do. Um, and so it gives me that thing that I'm really longing for. The gospel fulfills the desires of my identity. If you've been paying any attention at all to the public discourse about Christianity and especially American evangelicalism, you'll know that while we are busy about the work of assessing the weaknesses of modern secular narratives, many people, both inside and outside the church, are busy assessing the weaknesses and failures of the church's narratives about things like identity and power and other important issues. We may believe, for example, that the gospel offers an identity that provides both freedom and security, but what do we make of the very real accounts of people whose experience in church left them with a straitjacketed and insecure identity? How do we field their criticisms? Yeah, I think I think we should welcome it. Um, I think, you know, part of not being so defensive about it, I mean, the part of what should define the church community is a renewal dynamic, right? We, we should be doing it every day in our own personal walk with the Lord and every Sunday as we gather together is what's the first step? We, we look to God and see how wonderful he is. And the second step immediately is we have a sense of our own humility and fallenness and sinfulness. And we confess that and say, sorry. And then we receive forgiveness and we receive the gospel that renews us and helps us to change. Well, if that's the dynamic on a micro level, then actually what's going on here is the culture may well be pointing out sins, idolatries, dispositions which need to be repented of. Well, that's got to be welcomed and, and, you know, and, and encouraged, not defended. So it doesn't mean that everything the culture says is true and accepted, right? It just means the disposition is saying, not saying, how dare you, or no, you need to listen to me, is saying, I, I want to start by listening to you and seeing what's good about that, what's right, and, and where I might need to change. So, for example, in identity, I think the church has for a long time confused the gospel identity, which is liberating and secure, with a traditional identity, which is straitjacketed. And, it's, and so, actually, what a lot of people have experienced in this really vital area of identity is a straitjacketing and a constraining, and they're rebelling against that. And so there's and I think we need to own that and acknowledge that and say sorry for that. Um, so I think that, that diffuses the war, because if in the first situation when someone lobs a grenade at you, is you actually pick the grenade up and go, huh, well, let's talk about this, because I, I think you've got some valid points there. 
And, and I think we might need to say sorry on that. Because, and I'm okay with saying sorry because I do that every day because that's part of what makes me a Christian. That renewal dynamic is key rather than that fighting stance and that shrill dynamic as well. So that, that's a starting point maybe. Yeah, so where would you recommend in preaching, discipleship, whether it's in programs or just a, a general kind of culture in your church, how, how might pastors take sort of a next step of improvement in, in these kinds of discussions and the various ways that they shape the people in their care? One way is I think we are the, you know, generally should be the local church and therefore listen to people in your locality spend some time with your community listening to them if they're a group you know i think sometimes when these these cultural debates critical theory racial justice are at a, a macro level they can be so big and intimidating who can engage with that but actually if it's a starting a conversation with your neighbors and your community about how it impacts them we can all do that so i think it's, it's like opening up your doors opening up your your um your your homes and having those conversations and fostering the listening that's one way we want our work always to be contextual it seems like there could be a risk in high-level cultural analysis that informs our preaching, discipleship, etc. If the analysis I'm doing is perhaps appropriate to London but not to Birmingham or is appropriate to Birmingham but not to a nearby smaller city, right? And so I, I'm wondering for those who are listening who are in global cities, the dynamic is different from those who are listening from maybe smaller cities or smaller towns and thinking, I need to engage these major cultural trends, but those may not be the ones that are primarily influential where they serve. Well, you know, it's really helpful. Um, and you're right, the, the listening primarily needs to be in like concentric circles, listen locally, you know, and then have an idea of what's going on regionally and nationally, for example. And you're right, global cities like London are weird. London's not a normal place. New York, similarly. Um, often they're ahead of the curve. So it's kind of coming to a cinema near you, folks. You know, at a certain point, it's coming to you. So it can be a pre-preparation. Um, and so I think one of the privileges for me of ministering in a city like London is I can write a, write a book, like A Place for God, that has resonance in other cities, but may take a couple of years for it to have resonance in other non-urban contexts. But yeah, I think the other thing is actually sometimes reflecting on a wider cultural problem or something like that can give you particular insight on your own situation precisely because it's different. So if I'm thinking about identity... And I go, well, hang on, I'm not hearing people in my village talk about, I just want to find myself, you know, we're, we're not into that kind of new age narrative so much. And I'm certainly not hearing people say I can be whatever I want to be, um, you know, primarily. And then, but it might cause you to kind of go, oh, but what I am hearing is a more traditional sense, which is I know their family. And that's a much more, you know, they're bound up with, well, you know, I know their father and actually, you know, the apple never falls far from the tree type comment. And you suddenly go, oh, huh, that's an identity narrative as well. Well, it's the same gospel that applies to that. It's the same liberating, secure gospel that speaks to that and challenges that, that redeems that as well. And so hopefully that gives a window of reflection as well. So much in the same way that travel or, you know, reading from a different era does. Pete's posture and perspective are helpful because they remind us that for most of us, the job is not to win the war of ideas at the national or the international level. For most of us, the job is to love our neighbors and congregations and point them to Jesus. Disagreements are inevitable, but there's a lot of common ground for us to build on. I think the secular project is a lot closer um, to the Christian project that we care to admit. Um, largely because of the secular, a lot of things like humanism. Humanism is a Christian concept. 
right? That then humanism, right? The idea that humanity is really, really important and dignified and with reasonable faculties that can make this huge progress. Well, that's that's Christianity, right? Now, then it gets unmoored or dis divorced from its foundations and it flies off and becomes a you know a distorted thing. But it's come from that. Uh, people like Tom Holland in his great book Dominion have made this point really, really well. And it was really helpful because he's not a Christian as he makes the point. And so he's arguing that. He's arguing that the kind of Christian roots, Christian foundations are, are there in secularism and humanism. But also the idea of um, looking carefully at creation and discerning truth from it that can be applied to life. That very project is Christian. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God. You know? um, and so that the sense of looking carefully at creation. So again, I, I think all truth is God's truth. We don't need to be threatened by that. But, but all truth also that's received in a, that's not received directly from the revelation of scripture also needs to be looked at carefully and evaluated and tested and renewed. And so there will be no area of thought outside of, um, you know, the Bible that is perfect. When people see that type of conversation going on, I think that excites their interest of what Christianity has is, is got something to, to bring because it's making a difference to life. Um, if you can make an area of life better, um, then people kind of go, oh, that's very attractive. That adorns the gospel. Or maybe tell me why you're doing that. Where did that come from? Um, and so we're then back into a conversation about Christianity. So my name's Tim, and I'm serving in a church in downtown Athens. Tim Kumar is one of the founding pastors of Exarchaea Church. We heard a bit about the cultural and spiritual climate in Athens in the previous episode. But Tim explains that the younger people he lives and works among have a conflicted relationship with Western culture. Like many Christians, they see the Western secular project as failing. And that makes them an interesting conversation partner when it comes to challenging dominant cultural narratives. Here's Tim Kumar again. So Greece, you know, occupies this very interesting position um, between the East and the West, uh, having features of both. Uh, but very much on the political end of things, Greece has very often been attempting to act as a Western, you know, modern democracy, yet has been treated as, uh, not necessarily as a pariah, but as, um, as a backward Eastern nation. Um, so it, it, it's never had the sense that it's um, in a partnership with equals, even when it's been included um, with the rest of the West. The, the young kind of secular Greek people, especially the ones kind of more on the left, have completely rejected this uh, narrative that, oh, you know, we Greeks, uh, we gave civilization to the West and all this kind of stuff because <laughs> they realize that it's not an unbroken line of, of enlightenment and democracy. And actually, you know, Yodis may have mentioned this, but th there is a sense in which um, young people here, they, they do recognize that in kind of a, a more Western um, society, the uh, opportunities for um, personal professional kind of progress are, are um, it is a more conducive environment for someone to you know um, get ahead because it, it you're not bound by you know some of these more traditional structures um, which are more static um, but at the same time 
they are very aware of how you know Greek people have been treated um, by by the rest of Europe. So you know the Western mindset is that they are always the enlightened, responsible ones. So you saw that very much in like the economic crisis. Um, uh, politicians and technocrats would come over from the north of Europe and um, would uh, make a point of emphasizing that they are here to um, sort out the mess that the Greeks, the irresponsible, corrupt <laughs> Greeks have kind of created for themselves. <laughs> and, th- and the Greeks are listening to this, and especially, especially the young people, they know that, you know, tax evasion is an issue, that corruption is an issue. But at the same time, you know, at the time, the biggest scandal in the news was involved like a, a huge multinational German company. Um, they know that Greece is, you know, that 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 uh, the issue of debt and uh, and political kind of um, corruption exists in many other countries, even in the West. And yet, for some reason, you know, Greece was being singled out. They don't identify with the West, even though they want to be part of it. And so there's this kind of uneasy um, situation. But I, so I would say that that Greek people and and certainly young Greek people are. Um, more aware of this um, tendency of Western cultures to center itself, maybe more so than people who are who are less ambivalent about their Western identity. A couple of others, I guess, that are big ones in Greece. One is the church. It's considered, you know, a, a part of the Western narrative uh, and a barrier to progress. And then I guess another major one would be the kind of moral, cultural and political bankruptcy of the West this sense that um, in in the midst of all of these crises, that leaders genuinely don't seem to have anything to offer. It's more and more common for young people in cities to have, uh, you know, a social conscience and, and to be sensitive to various issues. But when they look around for leadership, uh, they aren't seeing anyone with serious answers, or, or that's what they say. And so they, they themselves are, are beginning to frame it more in terms of a failing of Western culture itself. You know, pe- people in power, rather than working towards solutions for their own people, are, are kind of chasing power for its own sake. Um, and they are then, once they're there, they serve to prop up a system that is basically morally bankrupt. So even if someone believes that the Western culture has certain principles that, um, in theory, would be able to right the ship, they're, 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 there's no one to turn to, no institutions left that. Um, would be able to serve that function because they're all considered to have um, not just failed, but they, they are, they're all part of the problem, basically. For young Athenians, the church is part of the fabric of the failing Western experiment. But when they think of church, they think first of Greek Orthodoxy, and Tim's church is Protestant and Evangelical. How does that difference affect their perception of Tim and his work? So where I am, people are, are are fairly well read. So they they would be able to to make the distinction, and in a sense, they would almost initially re- relax upon hearing that we are Protestant Christians. But then the very next thing they would think of are would be things like uh, televangelists. They would want to establish whether or not we have any kind of connection with that. Uh, and they'd be very wary of us up until they found out whether or not that was the case. So um, I used to think that it was um, it was an advantage that we weren't orthodox and that we were something else. 
but that something else is not necessarily a good thing in their eyes. It just means that they um, they don't they don't have all these ready-made critiques. But the thing that they do have in mind is 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 uh, is usually not something particularly positive. You're sensitive to or you're listening to critiques of both culture and Christianity from the people that you know and work with and are friends with. As a pastor, how do you process those critiques and criticisms of Christianity, of how do you decide which ones to let inform your ministry and kind of shape how you engage? Uh, that's a great question. Um, we, we often refer to Acts 17 as this great example of uh, cultural engagement because, you know, there we see Paul, he's quoting pagan philosophers back to the pagan culture as a way to connect with them on their own terms, but then, you know, also to challenge them through those through their own beliefs. But I'm beginning to realize more and more the necessity of another part of the process, which hadn't really been very much in my thoughts at all. And that's the necessity to challenge the culture of the church by means of these critiques leveled at it by the culture. So most, most of the negative rhetoric directed at the church uh, by the culture uh, pertains either to disagreements they have with certain Christian doctrines and moral teachings, or to the bad behavior of the church. And I guess it would be mostly the Orthodox church, but they do have evangelicals in mind, you know, and they would kind of take things they've heard that are happening with evangelicals, you know, in other countries, and, and they would kind of just default to applying it to us. What, what I'm seeing is that we, we tend to get automatically into one of two modes. So with regards to the doctrines, we rush to arm ourselves with arguments, uh, explanations, statistics where they're necessary um, to defend the doctrine that's under attack. Um, and then on, on the other hand, with the, regard to the, the bad behavior, we usually just shrug it off, at least in Greece, saying, you know, we Protestants are not like that. And the long and short of it is that in both cases, we don't really engage. We simply defend our position without interrogating it, without checking to see if those critiques have any kind of purchase. It has lots of negative effects, which I'm beginning to see more and more. In the first instance, it means that we're just becoming less and less able to hear what people are trying to say to us. People might be saying something that, that we really need to hear. And maybe they're not saying it in the best way, but it doesn't mean that there's nothing, that, that they're not seeing anything. By fostering a, a relationship with a culture that's more reactive rather than proactive, we are eliminating our ability to hear what they're saying to us. I remember um, listening to um, the historian Tom Holland's analysis of the Me Too movement. So at the moment, Greece is going through its own uh, Me Too movement in a very, very big way. There's been the issue of like femicides has, has become front page news in Greece. Um, uh, there's been like an average about about one per month this year that every single one of them, you know, made it significantly into the headlines. Are these victims of domestic abuse or? Yeah, for the most part. And, and so Tom Holland, he, he analyzes the, the, the Me Too movement by saying that maybe there, there's, there seems to be like this, you know, popular... A con, uh, perception that uh, the Me Too movement is like some kind of continuation of the sexual revolution uh, because the people who are advocating for Me Too are, are the people who would, we would maybe, and they themselves would, could, would consider themselves the children of the sexual revolution. You know, like what started in the 60s just needs to continue. 
And Tom Holland, he takes us back to the Roman Empire and he says, in the Roman Empire, the, the, um, the sexual ethic was if you were uh, a male um, Roman citizen, you had the right to use anyone you wanted in any way you wanted sexually um, who was below you in the social ladder. And so, and so Christianity comes in and it basically puts a stop to that. It, it, it tells powerful men that they cannot use other people sexually in any way that they want. They have to learn to control themselves. And, and so the Me Too movement is saying exactly the same thing. The Me Too movement is not the continuation of the sexual revolution. It's actually, in a sense, a return to a Christian morality. But here's the thing. Christians are very happy to talk about how harmful the sexual revolution has been for society. But they, they confine the discussion to matters of sexual practice. But the, the connection that Holland is making is not about, um, you know, ethics and morality at an individual level. He's talking about structures within society. He's talking about men being able to do whatever they want um, and using other people sexually. He, he's talking about the patriarchy, basically. And... When you have like this um, knee-jerk response to the, the you know the, the discussion taking place in the culture um, about the you know the the issues to do with the patriarchy, and those conver conversations are shut down by by Christians, then you lose all ability to take that critique. For a start, you lose its power, <laughs> but then you you are refusing to see how that critique may also apply to you. For me, the way in which the, the church um, can not only find its, its kind of relevance um, in the eyes of the culture again, but can actually find um, a powerful um, critique of the culture is by going through that whole process. At the top of this episode, Tim Keller noted that in order to develop a Christian high theory, we will need the help of non-Christian scholars and thinkers who have also seen the fatal flaws in late modernity. Tim Kumar sees younger, disaffected Athenians as serving a similar role in his context, as they can help him critique the shortcomings of the broader culture. But he's also recommending an additional step of self-reflection to consider how the fatal flaws in late modernity may be reflected in churches, denominations, and other organizations. Tim's inviting us to see this process as the beginning of repentance. It's an opportunity, in fact, to model the sort of repentance we want to see from the culture. And so if we take that and apply that uh, to the church um, and then make that argument, what, what the culture will be seeing is, hold on a sec, this is exactly what we've been uh, asking for. We're not asking uh, to see um, whether or not kind of a certain sexual practice is, is right or wrong. Um, what, what, we're, what we're looking for is um, an answer to this question. But once, once um, you have Christians who are saying, yes, we are seeing this and we're seeing that this is actually a problem in the church as well. But here's how the gospel speaks to both of us, calls us to repentance on both levels, both the individual level and the structural level. Then all of a sudden that argument becomes compelling. 
Could you give someone, a pastor, church leader, wherever they are in the world, how might it change their preaching? How might it change the way they approach discipleship or evangelism? Whichever those topics is more comfortable for you. If they were to do just just what you're suggesting and say, say, I'm hearing this critique and I want to go through the process of seeing the ways in which our church, our movement, our denomination participates in the world to a greater degree than, than we realized. How do they not just do that on an individual level, but maybe help the congregation process that journey with them? Yeah, that's a great question. So if we're referring to preaching, that, that, that is a helpful way of, of maybe narrowing the, the, the question down. So much of the things that are taking place in the culture um, could be received as a call from the culture to repentance. So, so in my preaching, I, I guess I want to get people both to take the issue seriously in the way that the world is helping us to take it seriously, because from in many cases it's a blind spot for us. But then also I want us to, to go where the gospel takes us so that we can see that, hold on a sec, um, I, up until now I've been viewing this as an issue of injustice that I'm called you know, to fight against that injustice. Um, but hold on a sec. I'm beginning to see that I'm actually um, more uh, a perpetrator of this than I, than I realized. And so my engagement needs to be enriched by this attitude of um, repentance. Uh, and, and it needs to be driven, uh, in a sense, by this kind of gospel repentance you know, so much of so much of activism is is kind of guilt driven, tokenism, and the ones who really are very very serious about it, they run out of steam. They really really run out of steam, and they they, uh, you know, some of my friends who are kind of activist friends, they um, are so exhausted um, because they they're facing down you know these massive systems of injustice that exist. No group has enough resources. No individual has those kinds of resources. And so what we need to be saying is, you know, the only, the only real resources that you have for, for, you know, being in this fight, for remaining in this fight, comes from the gospel. And I think this is why it's so frustrating for me when you see um, Christians trying to shut down those conversations because, A, you're limiting the horizons of people in the church to see how transformative the gospel is and then also f for those people who need that fight to be validated um, by by cutting them out of the of the conversation and by saying this this doesn't belong here you're not actually giving them that uh, resolution because there is no true lasting resolution in this life you know the, the hope of the gospel is um, is the resurrection uh, it is the new creation by cutting that out of the conversation and by not helping them complete that picture, you're not giving them the possibility to remain in the church in any meaningful way. Because in order to continue that journey, they have to go elsewhere. This brings us back accidentally, but probably not surprisingly, to the idea of a community that can offer belonging. What I'm seeing, you know, on in my day-to-day -day contact with people is, is that people are tired of being at war and by being a church that extends the hand of friendship where it's it's it's, it's really just not expected 
by being gracious in our interactions with people, they are completely bowled over. It's not that they just don't expect it. This is the thing. They don't think that it exists. And so if the church can find a way to live in that space, that space of being a gracious presence in a world at war, and the only way for that to happen is for us to take, that, take the gospel and apply it to our cultural engagement. Because um, otherwise we were going to have an attitude of pride, of defensiveness, um, of, you know, of moral superiority. It's going to happen. I was at a march um, and uh, a friend of mine who is um, uh, a drag performer, you know, uh, he introduced me to a, a trans friend of his and immediately said, oh, you know, he's, he's, he's not one of these Christians that doesn't like us. And it was such a simple phrase. You know, Christians very often talk about, you know, contacts. How, how many contacts do you have with non-Christians? No, you can actually, ha, ha, you know, have friends, you know, real friendships in the world. Not with the world, <laughs> in the world, it, you know, with, with human beings. Um, and that's, that's opening up the space um, for, for the gospel to be heard. And we know that that is the only hope. That is the only true hope. Um, and very often the gospel cannot reach people simply because that space does not exist. Lately, I've been preoccupied by an image of the kind of space Tim describes here, a space where warring ceases and a door is open for the gospel to correct and complete harmful narratives that distort and deceive. The image that comes to my mind is a meal at Levi's house, Levi the tax collector. There, Jesus challenged everyone's narrative and invited all of them to repentance. It's a vision that, for me, thrills as much as it challenges. Next week, we're back to hear Tim Keller describe what it looks like to develop a truly post-Christendom evangelism dynamic in our churches. Our guests, Pastor Rene Bruel from Rome and apologist Lisa Fields, founder of the Jude 3 Project, will join us to take the conversation even further. You won't want to miss it. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. It is written and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Just about everything else is done by Braden Gregg. Special thanks to Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona for the generous use of their studio space. If you want to learn more about Redeemer City to City, you can find us online at RedeemerCityToCity.com. <laughs>